Hello, friends, and welcome to a very special episode of the Latter-day Lives podcast. This is our Christmas special. A few weeks ago, and for the past few weeks, we've asked you to submit your thoughts and stories about Christmas, and we just got some wonderful submissions that I'm very excited to share with you today. Uh, All of the music you're going to hear today is from our dear friend Garth Smith, and I want to thank him. Garth has become a good friend uh, since I was able to interview him a while back, and he's got this incredible album, which is called A Sacred Christmas. It's available iTunes or wherever you stream your music or at garthsmithmusic.com if you want to buy the CD. It's it's the most beautiful Christmas album. So all the music you'll hear is from our dear friend Garth Smith. And everything we're going to read today is uh, from you, our listeners. And thank you again to those of you who took the time to uh, submit your your thoughts and stories on this beautiful holiday. And so without any further ado, here is our Christmas special. Listener Ruth Ann Kerr writes, As this Christmas season was approaching, I wanted to be sure I had a Christ-centered Christmas. Each year I like to buy a few new ornaments for my tree. As I stood in the craft store looking at all the ornaments, I looked for a manger, a small nativity, or even a star, but no luck. And then I saw it. A little lamb, white and without blemish. I knew I had to have it. As I reached for the little lamb, tears filled my eyes. I thought about the Savior, the Lamb of God. I also thought about the little lambs that may have been present in the stable that sacred night. May we each remember the true meaning of Christmas, this year and every year. Our next story is from my friend Ken Williams, who was a guest on the show. Uh, You may remember uh, him talking about using cakes to minister. Uh, He wrote me and said he completely forgot about a, a book he wrote last year called The Christmas Clock. And here is the story of The Christmas Clock. Frustrated with the kids fighting with each other, my sweet wife was about ready to make an ultimatum one December evening. I could see her brain in her mouth struggling with what penalty she would invoke. She had to do something that would get their attention, but it had to be something we were willing to stick to. The words formed in her brain and almost made it out. Boys, if you can't stop fighting, we're going to... Wait, would she say it? Was she actually going to cancel Christmas? Her good mom filter won. She announced, if you can't stop fighting, we are going to postpone Christmas. Postpone Christmas? Well, that's brilliant. I went and found an old clock with no batteries. I set the hands to show six o'clock. I picked up where she left off. Six o'clock in the morning is when Christmas starts. You can get up, see what Santa brought, and enjoy the treats in your stocking. However, if you fight... We will add time to the clock. 
My daughter Carissa asked what we meant. Mom said, that's right. If you fight, maybe we'll add an hour. Maybe that means that Santa doesn't come until 7 o'clock. No presents, no reindeer, nothing. Oh, I was loving this idea. Marcine was quick to point out, though, that if they were good, they could earn time back. We had a rough December. They lost more time than they earned. By Christmas Eve night, the time on the clock was 11.45 a.m. The kids woke up early Christmas morning. There was nothing. It was awesome. They woke us up, concerned. Santa didn't come. I asked what time was on the clock. They saw it was 11.45. Well, that means Santa doesn't come until 11.45. And that gives us plenty of time to go to Grandma and Grandpa's for breakfast. While we ate crepes with Grandma and Grandpa for a most relaxing breakfast, Santa came. He filled the stockings, ate the cookies and milk we left out, and left presents for all the kids. Christmas had been postponed. The rest of the day was no pressure, super relaxed. We came home, played with toys, and the kids enjoyed their Santa gifts, while Marcine and I went to the movies. After the movie, we opened gifts, and we enjoyed the rest of the day. It was the best Christmas. And now, 11 years later... All we have to do is ask the kids if it's time to get out the Christmas clock. Behavior instantly improves. This story is from a dear friend of mine. Uh, He sent this over to me and asked to remain anonymous, and it's a beautiful story. He says, Like many residents of the Silicon Valley, my home was greatly blessed by dedicated, loving, and successful parents. Christmas was traditional, which composed of a seasonal mingling of family and friends with dining and the exchange of gifts between the same. Admittedly, my family's Christmas experience during my youth was greatly energized by the commerce of Christmas. After returning home from my missionary service in 1993, I found myself clerking in an investment banking firm in San Francisco's financial district. My position at the firm afforded me a professional and rigid working relationship with everyone at the firm. After a six-month foray with them, I kept my promise and terminated my services. See, prior to my employment there, I had hatched a plan to move to Utah with a friend that had recently returned after completing his mission. That plan had to be modified as the sound of wedding bells swept my cohort away. In spite of these changes, I left San Francisco's financial district to see what Utah had in store. Prior to leaving the firm, I was not able to leave without a generous farewell cash infusion, some well wishes, a few farewell lunches, and an offer, which I turned down, to stay on as a stockbroker trainee. One of my farewell lunches took place at the nearby Hyatt Regency, early in the month of December. It was a fine dining experience shared with one of the most elderly and refined members of the firm. While dining, the elderly fellow declared his disfavor for the commercialization of Christmas, and revealed that his family opted to forego the usual exchange of gifts to serve others in a soup kitchen. 
The content of our conversation left a crisp impression. It found a home in my soul. A seed was planted. In December of 2008, 15 years after my Hyatt Regency dining experience, I found myself, once again, within the fray of the seasonal Christmas shopping experience. All of the gifts had been gathered and wrapped. I was ready to go. I planned to meet up with my brother to carpool to our familiar destination. When my brother showed up, a switch flipped. I can't put my finger on why, but I decided to transfer all of my gifts to my brother's vehicle and then directed him to give my gifts to family members and to wish them all a Merry Christmas. I had decided to spend Christmas alone, or at least doing something entirely different. I contemplated my options. I eventually reflected upon my Hyatt Regency dining experience and eventually decided to serve. I searched the internet for soup kitchens, but when I called, I discovered they had all served their Christmas meals a day early. This, I imagine, was so all those involved could spend Christmas Day with their own families. Undeterred, I decided I would seek out those that could use a seasonal favor. While I was still in my vehicle creating a game plan, I noticed a needy soul seeking out food in a garbage can. I got out of my car and asked him if I could purchase a meal for him at a local grocery store. We drove to a Safeway store, and I invited him to select whatever he wanted from the food case. He chose a few items and went on his way. We shared a brief exchange and wished each other a Merry Christmas. I was about 30 minutes from San Francisco, so I decided to drive into the city to see if there were others I could assist. My first stop was at a grocery store on Marina Boulevard. There I purchased gift cards to distribute to anyone I encountered that could use them. I drove around the city for what felt like a couple of hours. To my surprise, it was difficult to find people in need. Maybe, or most likely, I just didn't know where to look. I decided to park my car near Fisherman's Wharf. I found that most of the people there were tourists until I discovered a small park that some called home. I saw a middle-aged man who appeared to be wearing torn clothing. Nothing matched. I imagined his hygiene was an unusual priority. Plastic bags were his socks. He paused to sit on a curb to face the inside of the park. I approached to talk to him. I looked into his eyes and asked if he would like a gift card to a grocery store. In a perpendicular line, he stared off into space and didn't say a word. I tried to talk to him for a couple of minutes. I got nothing. I was stunned to experience this realm of humanity. I felt empathy for him, but there seemed to be nothing I could do. I encountered another gentleman asleep in the park. He appeared to be well insulated and asleep next to a shopping cart. I spoke to him and asked if he would like a gift card. He said, yes, thank you. I placed the card in his shopping cart and looked around to see if there were others in need. Not finding anyone else, I returned to my car to seek others in the city. After driving for about an hour, I encountered two people at a bus stop. It seemed the bus stop was more of a communal spot for them, so I parked my vehicle and approached them. I told them I was handing out gift cards for Christmas and asked if they would like one. They were both elated, and what admitted from the gentleman's mouth was the most warm and happy Merry Christmas greeting my ears had heard. The hearty greeting was backed up by a big hug. Feeling my day was nearing a close, I decided to relocate. I parked my car near California and Market, right where I used to work. At the end of a walk around my old building, I found a young soul who was asking for money. I gave him my last $20 and purchased a meal for him, 
at a Mexican diner. We had some good conversation, wished each other a Merry Christmas, and went our separate ways. Just across the street sat the place where it all began 15 years ago, the Hyatt Regency. There a seed was planted over a good meal and a friendly conversation. I commemorated our Christmas conversation by dining there once again. I may have spent Christmas alone, but I was certainly not empty. I was filled. Christ certainly is the reason for the season. This next story was sent in by one of our wonderful listeners, Rusty Markham. Christmas growing up for me was always a big deal. I loved pouring through the pages of the Sears catalog, marking the toys I wanted Santa to bring. I loved watching Claymation Rudolph and It's a Wonderful Life. Every Christmas Eve for 18 years, we ate dinner with the same family. After dinner, we'd drive around town and look at Christmas lights until the younger kids settled down and were ready for bed. On Christmas morning, friends and neighbors would gather at our house for huevos rancheros and hot wassail. It was an awesome time, filled with love and fun. But you know, it was really all about the fun, and I was missing a big point of the season. And then I really learned what the season was about. My first Christmas on my mission, I was only out two months, and I found myself with no family, no Rudolph, and my gifts were stuck somewhere between the States and Ecuador. Our teaching pool was struggling. I was in a funk. Where was my Christmas? It didn't take long before my companion and I realized we needed to make our own magic. Armed with hymn books and homemade gifts, We caroled each one of the families and people we were working with. After presenting them with the small gifts and a message, we would leave with our hearts full. It was then I learned true Christmas was found in the celebration and service of the one whose birth we celebrated. Our next story comes from Gina Alpers. Gina was my wife's best friend in high school. They grew up together, and we've become dear friends with her and her husband, Steve, who's just a great guy. We go out together and wonderful people. And she shared a story called Christmas Cacophony, which was written down by uh, Pam Barton, who is her sister. And this is their family's story. The rules of the house were firm. No one, and I mean no one, was allowed to go into the living room to get a sneak preview of what Santa had left under the tree and in the stockings. But then again, rules are meant to be broken. And over the past few years, Alan and I had been very successful at breaking into the living room. Oh, we were careful when we carried out our attacks. Hand gestures, excited whispers, and short bursts of laughter were the only forms of communication we used. We never ate the candy from our stocking, because the wrappers made such a loud, crackling noise. Well, at least we never really planned on eating the candy, but somehow it always managed to disappear, leaving a trail of wrappers leading back to our bedrooms. 
After our allotted time for plundering, we would carefully hide all of the toys under the tree and cram whatever goodies we hadn't eaten back into the stockings. Feeling smug about not getting caught, we would sneak back into our bedrooms, knocking into furniture that had been rearranged to accommodate Christmas decorations, and unsuccessfully trying to stifle our enthusiastic recounting of the cherished presents. Going back to bed was torturous, because we knew what glories awaited us in the living room. But the rules of the house were firm. No one, and I mean no one, was allowed to go into the living room until all the younger children were awake. Over the years, our Christmas escapades became more sophisticated as Alan and I became more experienced partners in crime. Well, this year was no exception. Before going to bed, we did one final sweep of the living room, noting where the furniture was arranged in relationship to the placement of the tree and limp stockings hanging from the fireplace. I double-checked the plate of cookies and milk to make sure they were on the right-hand side of the hearth. The previous year, I forgot where I had placed the glass, and as a result, sent it crashing to the ground, spraying milk all over the wrapped gifts. We drew a rough map of where everything was, then reviewed and finalized our plan of attack. Our plan was flawless, and we knew we were invincible. Although I was the first one to wake up that memorable Christmas morning, I laid in bed for a while, listening to the sounds of darkness and steady breathing of my sister, who slept beside me. After carefully sliding out of my bed, I slipped into my thick slippers, specifically chosen for their ability to muffle the sounds of footsteps across the wooden floors. Then I slowly crouched down and began my cautious approach toward the bedroom door. I understood silence was crucial, and the next few minutes would determine the success of our break-in. I could not afford to be careless because any slight sound could wake Laura and cause her to cry out in alarm to Mom and Dad. The clock ominously ticked. My heartbeat pounded in my ears. My throat became scratchy and dry as I reveled in the adrenaline rush of anticipation and fear of discovery. One minute. Two minutes. Finally, after what seemed an eternity, I reached the door and paused to reassess my situation. Laura was still soundly dreaming of Santa, and after listening to the absence of noise beyond my door, I could tell Alan was probably still sleeping too. I rose to a standing position, placed my hand on the doorknob, took a deep breath, and slowly turned the handle, praying I wouldn't wake my sister. I froze at the soft click of the latch, but there was still no movement from the bed, so I knew I was safe. As I pulled the door toward me, I felt a slight tug of resistance, but was reassured when I didn't hear the creaking sound of the hinges. And then it happened. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but there was the most terrifying sound I have ever heard. It was a loud, metallic crashing noise, followed by multiple reverberations of clashing, clanging, cacophony. In one giant leap, I was in bed holding on to Laura for dear life and expecting the ceiling to collapse under the weight of destruction. And then, an eerie silence. It seemed like hours, but realistically, it was probably only moments later when I heard the joyous squeal 
of my younger brothers as they clambered into the living room and discovered the toys from Santa and all the bulging stockings? Did they not understand the terror that awaited them? Did I dare leave my room to warn them of what I had heard? At the distant sound of my dad's booming laughter, I reluctantly decided to leave the safety of my room. Once again, I cautiously approached the door, but before I could reach for the handle, Laura pushed me aside to join the merriment in the living room. That was when I caught my first confusing glimpse of it. An assortment of cookie sheets, tin cans, and pot lids jumbled together in a heap. The resistance I had felt earlier when I began to open the door was the tugging of a string tied to a cookie sheet balanced on Alan's bedroom door frame across the hall from mine. The string pulled the cookie sheet down onto a tall stack of precariously balanced objects, which then set off a chain reaction. Apparently, Santa Claus is making a list and checking it twice, not only to find out who's naughty and nice, but also to design booby traps. Over the years, those designs have become more elaborate and complicated. As the complexity of the traps increased, my brother's sister and I became more determined to outwit Santa, but he always seemed to be one step ahead of us. One year, I confided to Alan that we'd be able to escape the traps unscathed because I had a key to the front door, All we had to do was climb out of my bedroom window, unlock the front door, and bypass all the booby traps. But once again, Santa prevailed, because the rules of the house were firm. No one, and I mean no one, was allowed to go into the living room to get a sneak preview of what Santa had left under the tree and in the stockings. Santa Claus, a.k.a. my father and brothers, have been booby-trapping our houses for the past 45 years. My brothers brag that once, once, were they able to make it into the living room without setting off the alarms. Santa has often been heard to complain that it has frequently taken him all night to set up the traps, and he's barely gotten in bed before hearing the first stage of alarms go off. received a wonderful message from listener Skylar Fleming. Christmas to me is a time of joy. Being a convert since 2016, Christmas has taken on a new meaning for me. Christmas used to just be a break from school and a time to get the gifts I've been wanting. But since joining the church when I was 18, the new meaning of Christmas for me is a very Christ-centered one. Christmas is a time of happiness for everyone, even those that aren't members and it gives such an opportunity to explain to everyone where all the happiness comes from. That's from Christ. So for me, Christmas means a time of joy, an opportunity to serve, and help others see the light of the world and point them toward Christ. (music) 
Our next story is from my friend Mike Barrett. Mike is my friend, our neighbor, and is soon to be a guest on the show. He is a brilliant man. He says, It was in December 1962. I was about eight years old. We were headed out on old Highway 89 from our home in Orem, Utah, to the big city of Salt Lake. Us kids were crowded together on the bench seat in the back of our pale green 1956 Chevy station wagon. I had three main goals for the evening, which I think were shared by the whole family. One, sit on the lap of, quote, real Santa at the Grand Central store and convince him to grant my wish for Christmas Eve. Two, get mom and dad to stop at the Frosty Top Drive-In on 5700 South State Street for a rare chance to get a real hamburger and fries. And three, shop and find the greatest gift ever for my brother Kim, whose name I had picked out of a hat as the one I would find a gift for that year. I'm sure my parents had additional goals for the evening, including just being together as a family, keeping a family tradition alive, and keeping all of us kids from fighting with each other or getting lost downtown. Well, we did stop at the Frost Top Drive-In for a hamburger. We also went to Grand Central and we did visit the real Santa. I knew it was the real Santa. I could just tell he had real leather boots. His long white beard was really growing out of his face. He had a warm smile, rosy cheeks, and magical sparkle in his eyes. Finally, it was time for the shopping. I had saved a little money, and I remember how badly I wanted to get my brother something that would really mean something to him. My parents gave a reminder before we all went in separate directions. Remember, don't even think about what you want for Christmas. Tonight is about doing something for someone else. We walked the streets and stores of old downtown, J.C. Penney, Woolworths, Cress, and ZCMI. Eventually, something really caught my eye, and it caught my attention, my excitement, and everything else. A small candy-striped pocket knife. Oh, I wanted that little knife so badly. I also wanted to not want it. After all, tonight was not about me, but about doing something for my brother. The internal battle of wills ensued. I finally decided that I could walk out of that store without a pocket knife for me. I also reasoned that if I liked that pocket knife so much, my brother might also really like it. I bought him a blue and green striped one, and I left that red and white candy striped knife on the store counter. I walked away with a small sack and one small treasure in it for my brother. I hoped then, and over time came to know, that seeing a smile on my brother's face was more important than buying myself a gift. What I didn't know then, but soon found out, was that my brother had drawn my name in our family gift exchange, had noticed me eyeing those pocket knives, and he gave me the candy-striped knife in our Christmas Eve gift exchange. It was a sweet Christmas. Almost 60 years later, those two small pocket knives have long since disappeared. The memories of those early Christmas excursions traditions, and gatherings are faded and missing a few pieces, but the lessons I learned will stay with me eternally. The true gifts of Christmas that year were cherished teachings from goodly parents. I mention here just a few. One, the family is of the greatest importance. 
Two, family traditions maintain cherished connections. Three, be gracious in receiving and more importantly, thoughtful in giving. Four, abundance comes not from acquisition of things, but rather knowing that what we have is enough. Five, if you will seek after something, go for something that is real. Six, as Elder Uchtdorf says, unselfishness is not thinking less of ourselves, but rather thinking of ourselves less. And seven, those who lose themselves in service of others will find themselves, as we learn in the New Testament. We all pass on lessons to those we love, and we learn from those who love us. We may as well be aware and deliberate about whatever it is that we are teaching. In my case, my beloved parents chose Jesus Christ as their teacher, mentor, and exemplar, and personal Savior. They made great efforts to follow His example. How grateful I am that they did their very best to pass on sacred beliefs and valuable lessons to nine children, their children's spouses, fifty grandchildren, more than eighty great-grandchildren, and their wide circle of friends. This touching story was sent to us by listener Elizabeth Stiles. It's called My Nativity. Nine years ago, I was just 32 weeks pregnant, and I was in labor. It was a day or two before Christmas when I was taken by ambulance from our hometown hospital to a hospital in a city more than an hour away. My husband followed behind in his car. Our 16-year-old daughter was left to take care of her seven siblings at home. Meanwhile, the EMS and L&D nurse were with me, not at home preparing for their own holiday. Arriving at the hospital, every measure was taken to stop my labor, or to prepare for an imminent birth. Eventually, things calmed down. My husband returned home to the children, and I remained in the hospital for close observation. The nurses and my doctor remained as well. My teenage daughter realized that with mom in the hospital and dad traveling back and forth, she was the one responsible for the magical Christmas of her younger siblings. Born that Christmas Eve was a new and beloved family tradition. She made reindeer food with the children and helped them sprinkle it in the yard. Santa and Mrs. Claus showed up that night, possibly on a motorcycle, but I'm not certain of that. They were bearing gifts and memories never to be forgotten by my children, including my 16-year-old. Showing up at that time also was our bishop, bearing gifts, gift cards, so my husband didn't have to worry about gas as he drove back and forth to the hospital, a lesson in charity we have never forgotten. On Christmas morning, my husband sent me videos of the children opening the presents I had bought and wrapped. Seeing them was both joyful and heartbreaking. I sat in my hospital bed, looking out the window and across the river. All was still and quiet, not my norm, and I felt more alone than I had ever felt in my life. At that moment, I had a sense of how Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have felt as she lay in a stable about to bring forth a child, her child, in the lowliest and loneliest of conditions. My testimony of Mary's divine role 
was born that day. Eventually, nurses, doctors, cleaners, and cafeteria staff made their way through my room, bringing joy, never complaining, working one of our most cherished holidays, and doing so with the pure love of Christ. My husband came, my children too, and several days later, I was released home, not having had the baby, but having learned some of the greatest lessons of my life about charity and love and selflessness, understanding more fully the role of Mary and Joseph, the shepherds and the wise men. As I approach this Christmas season, once again very pregnant, I am drawn to those lessons again. I feel sincere adoration for those individuals who willingly serve as Christ served, the doctors, the nurses, the EMS, the aides, the cafeteria workers, the police officers, the janitors, the receptionists, the bishops, the bishops' wives and children, the Santas, the Mrs. Clauses, the 16-year-old daughters, and the devoted husbands. And I honor Mary, young Mary, who walked through the valley of the shadow of death to bring forth my Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Our next story is one near and dear to my heart. It's one I heard every year when I was growing up. It's called How Rudolph Got His Red Nose, and it is told by my own mother. And if you want to hear my mother's story, she is also a past guest of the show. You can find her episode in the archives. When I was a little girl, my father would tell this story every Christmas Eve as we were going to bed. My dad, Raymond Lester, was a sign painter. His company was called Lester Signs. His workshop was in our garage at the bottom of our yard. The entry to the workshop was through the back alley. Here's the story. It was early Christmas Eve, and up at the North Pole, the elves had run out of several colors of paint. There were still toys and signs to be painted. The elves went to Santa to ask what they should do. Everyone was worried that there would not be enough toys for all the boys and girls around the world. Santa said that all the paint stores and hardware stores were closed, but they had one chance. He explained that he had heard of a sign painting company in Canada. The sign painter was called Raymond Lester, and he worked in a workshop near Calgary. Santa instructed the elves to harness the reindeer to the sleigh and fly down to Calgary. They would ask Raymond the sign painter for some paint. The elves got the sleigh ready to go, harnessed the reindeer, and took off at the speed of light. As they flew over Calgary, they were looking for the lights on the workshop. They made a safe landing, and Raymond was there waiting for them. As he unlocked the door to the shop, the elves unharnessed the reindeer, and they all went inside. There were over a dozen people and animals in the small shop. It got a little crazy. There was a reindeer named Rudolph. He was clumsy and not very popular with all the other reindeer. Everyone was opening cans of paint, looking for the specific colors they needed. They were in a hurry. There was a lot of work to do back at the North Pole. The elves were busy loading up the sleigh, when suddenly Rudolph slipped and fell, and his head landed in a can of red paint. 
What a mess. Raymond got one of his rags and was able to wipe Rudolph's face clean. But the nose, oh, the nose, it was glowing red. The other reindeer laughed and laughed and pointed. A red nose? Who ever heard of a bright red nose? As everyone left the shop, they realized a fog had settled in over the town, and all that could be seen was a red nose. The reindeer weren't laughing and pointing anymore. It was decided that Rudolph would be harnessed at the front and would take the lead in getting the sleigh back to the North Pole. They said goodbye and thank you to Mr. Lester, and off they went. They made it back to the North Pole in time to finish the toys and signs. And that is how Rudolph got his red nose. Our next story comes from a listener named Denny Guyman, and Denny shares with us that when he was eight or nine years old, he learned that he had had a twin, and that the twin had died in utero, and that he felt really bad about it. Uh, She had died as a result of not getting enough nourishment, and he felt guilty for this. He carried this with him and actually blamed himself, and then he shares this Christmas story. I have grown up in the church. It has always been in my life in many ways. One thing that has deepened my love for Christmas is a production that the church puts on at Christmas time each year since the year 2000. It is presented in the Conference Center Theater and is titled Savior of the World. I have been blessed to be in this production three different times, and each time some of my kids were in it with me. My wife and I have six kids, so she stayed home with the ones that were not old enough to be in it. She also is not one that likes to be in the limelight. I believe it was the first year I was in the production that I had the following spiritual experience. At the beginning of the second act of the play, it starts with Jesus being placed in the tomb and the stone being rolled in front of the sepulcher. I was blessed to be on stage during this scene. Mary Magdalene was left by the tomb, and she sings a beautiful song about how she felt abandoned by Jesus. During this song, I had made it a practice to meditate and ponder on the words that she sings. During this performance, I had a peace and quiet come over me. I felt the presence of someone familiar next to me. I opened my eyes and could not see anyone. I closed my eyes again and knew who it was. It was my twin that had died while we were in the womb together. I could not see her with my physical eyes, but as my eyes were closed, I saw her in my mind. She looked like a younger version of my mom. She was around 20 years old and dressed in all white. She had one phrase to say to me. As she looked at me with her loving eyes, she said, It is not your fault. It is not your fault. Then I felt her give me a hug and hold me as I wept. I will always treasure this Christmas gift that I was given many years ago. I intend that everyone who hears this story is blessed with their own Christmas gift that will heal them as this one healed me. And 
this cute story is from Violet Jean Rogers. I was in my early 20s and dating a guy who I was totally in love with. It was Christmas time, and I decided to find the perfect present for him. I shopped several department stores until I found the perfect gift, a beautiful blue sweater. I had it professionally wrapped, and it looked magnificent, if I do say so myself. My boyfriend came over to my apartment on Christmas morning, and I gave him my present. We were then to go to my parents' home for Christmas dinner. The only problem was that my boyfriend had no present for me. Oh, I was so disappointed. When we got to my parents' home, I quietly told my mother not to ask what he had given me, because it was nothing. My mom took our coats and went around the corner to hang them in the coat closet. For some reason, my boyfriend wanted to know exactly where his coat was, and Mom showed him the closet. I made up my mind to forget about the present I didn't get and to enjoy the meal with my family. As we were eating and having a good conversation, my boyfriend asked my dad if he could ask a question. He then proceeded to ask him permission for my hand in marriage. After my dad said yes, my boyfriend went to his coat, got out a ring box, and asked me to marry him in front of the whole family. I was elated. I completely forgave him for not giving me a present at the apartment earlier. I have now enjoyed this Christmas present for over 50 years as we celebrated our golden anniversary this year. It was the best present ever. We have an interesting Christmas coming up for ourselves in my own family this year. Uh, For avid listeners of the show, you'll know that uh, I mentioned we recently adopted a 19-year-old son. He is the uh, birth brother of a young lady we adopted several years ago, and we now have eight children. One of the funny things about the way we've compiled our family is that uh, not all of our children have met each other yet. Our daughter, Portia, who is 28, lives up in Salt Lake, about 45 minutes from us, and she doesn't drive, so it's a little bit tricky getting everyone together. Our new son, Cameron, lives in Provo, 15 minutes south of us, and he doesn't drive. And so they have never met, and we've never had all eight of our children together. Well, on Christmas Day, everybody is coming. We will have all eight children here together for the first time on this side of the veil. And I'm very excited to see them all together and to get a picture. And to me, that's what Christmas is. Christmas brings us together. And I've had wonderful Christmases where family's been able to get together. And I've also had difficult Christmases. And for many of you, this Christmas will be a a first and maybe not in the best way. It'll be a first Christmas without a grandfather or grandmother or mother or sibling or possibly even without a child. And I'm so sorry for you. My heart breaks. But the beautiful message is that Christ brings us all together, whether it's physically here 
at Christmas time that we're able to get together. Or maybe it's not even death, maybe it's just distance or missions or whatever it is that keeps us apart. It's okay. The gathering of a family at Christmas is symbolic of the gathering that because of Christ's birth, we will ultimately have one day in his care. I have to think, and I have no idea how it works, but on the other side of the veil, that because of the power of Christ's birth, and because it's such a joyous time to celebrate, that those we've lost, my grandparents, my brother, friends of ours, so many who have already gone on, that they're gathering together the way that we will be gathering uh, this Christmas day. For unto us a child is born. Isn't it beautiful? How blessed we are. Merry Christmas, everyone, and God bless you all. I want to thank all of our listeners who submitted these beautiful stories. I hope it enriches your Christmas the way it has for me. Thank you so much also to Garth Smith for his beautiful music. What a talented man. I'm so grateful that Garth is my friend. Uh, Remember, we will not have any episodes for a few weeks. I'm so glad we got to end on this special episode. We're taking a break, and then we'll be back. But until then, rather than our normal ending, I'll just wish you a Merry Christmas from the bottom of my heart. May God bless each and every one of you at this beautiful time. Oh